as we continue our series, uh, Finding God in Silicon Valley. And the premise of our series, Finding God in Silicon Valley, is that there are some unique qualities and characteristics um, about living here in Silicon Valley that can make it challenging to develop a flourishing relationship with God. And so in this series, we're looking at different aspects of that. We actually got some feedback from people uh, at our Easter gathering two weeks ago um, on our, our connection card. We asked Uh, for some people just to write in responses. What is one stress or frustration or doubt that makes it hard to find God here in Silicon Valley? And um, one set of responses that we got was all about pace of life and time. Um, Pastor Herman tackled that last week. And so if you missed last week, I just encourage you. uh, It's available on our website. You can get it on our podcast. Great way to catch up. This week, um, we're going to tackle a slightly different issue. There were a number of responses that we got that had to do with the culture and kind of spiritual climate of Silicon Valley, that there's a significant amount of skepticism. Some people even mention kind of a feeling of hostility or doubt uh, that is just a part of the climate and culture of Silicon Valley. And there were other people that kind of expressed that they themselves were just wrestling with deep doubts about their relationship with God. And, and, and that was a part of their experience being in Silicon Valley that made it hard for them to grow in their relationship with God. And I actually think that these two things are connected, that uh, the sense of skepticism or hostility that we encounter from the people around us, uh, maybe the people that we work with, maybe family, maybe our neighbors, um, can kind of affect our own sense of how we think about God, of when we wrestle with God, of the questions that we have. And we wanted to tackle this here today uh, because our church tries hard to be a place where uh, it's safe to ask questions, it's safe to express doubt. And I know that on some level that's kind of unique. It can be hard, um, especially in a church context, to express doubts that we're carrying. And I was trying to think a little bit about why this is, and there was actually a scene that came to my mind. So I thought I'd share it because I think it's kind of a helpful context to get to the bottom of maybe some of the things that we feel. So uh, when I was growing up, one of my favorite movies was the original Star Wars movie. So it was released in 1977. I was two years old, didn't see it in the theater. Um, But we had a VHS tape of it as I was growing up, and I must have watched it a hundred times. I actually brought a VHS tape in because I realized there are people here who don't know what a VHS tape is. This is a VHS tape. It plays in something called a VCR, which also essentially no longer exists. Um, You used to get them at a place called Blockbuster, which also no longer exists. So uh, I would watch Star Wars over and over again. And there was one scene where a group of the Imperial generals were getting together for a meeting. And there was one general that was very excited because the Death Star had just become operational. And so he was telling people in the meeting that now that the Death Star is operational, there is no other force or power in the entire galaxy that can withstand the the destructive power of the Death Star. And so while they're having this meeting, Darth Vader walks in. He's got that breath. And so he hears this general talking about how awesome the Death Star is. And Darth Vader just says, you have no idea what you're talking about. There, you know, don't, 
don't get too high on yourself because the power of the Death Star is not worth comparing to the power of the Force. And so this general is not very bright because he decides to argue with Darth Vader. And so he starts to talk, tell him about how, you know, this voodoo religion, you know, is, is nothing compared to the power of the Death Star. And Darth Vader holds up his hand, chokes off his breath. And while the general is choking, he says, I find your lack of faith disturbing. Now, thank you. Now, we may not consciously say it, but I think deep down, all of us have maybe a, an emotional sense that if we were to be honest with our doubts, that possibly the people around us, possibly God himself, would res respond to our doubts the way that Darth Vader responds to that general. Choke us off. I find your lack of faith disturbing and make us pay. And what I want to express, and some of that may even be reasonable because in some of the interactions that we've had with other people, honestly, if we express to another person and we say, you know, I don't think I can trust you. I, I, I don't, I mean, we rarely would say, I don't know if you're real, but I don't know if you're telling me the truth. I don't know if I can believe in the things that you say. I don't know if I can trust you. That if we said that to another person, that they might genuinely take offense. Uh, we might um, harm the relationship. But in the context of our relationship with God, and in the context of the way that we see people interacting with God in Scripture— the teaching of Scripture is that God has a very different approach to us when we come before him and we say, I'm really struggling in my relationship with you. I'm not sure that I can trust you. I'm not sure where my faith in you is. That far more than being offended, God wants to meet us right at the point of our doubts. And so, we're going to look at a passage today that's going to guide us through it because what we see from Scripture is that far more than doubt and faith being mutually exclusive, that somehow they're incompatible, they can't exist together, what we see in Scripture is that they often show up right in the same place, that actually someone is able to express to Jesus and say, I believe, help my unbelief that belief and unbelief can coexist together. They can be in tension even as someone is trying to live out their faith. Or in another place, Jesus can actually teach, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, that you're going to be able to experience the power of God. The mustard seed is so small, and it gives this context that there can be a whole lot of other thoughts and feelings and questions and concerns that surround that small amount of faith. But if you're able to have that small amount of faith and to bring that to God, that God can unleash his power, his love. You can experience him in your life. But the key element is not so much that we have to pretend that we have no doubts or that the presence of doubt prevents us from being able to thrive or move forward in our relationship with God. What scripture teaches us is that there's a way that we need to engage our doubts in order to grow our relationship with God. And so we're going to look at one of the accounts in Scripture that helps us to do that. 
And um, the passage we're going to look at today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, uh, verses 24 to 29. And it's our custom here at New Beginnings to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. If you're able to stand, I invite you to stand, um, and I will read the passage for us. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. You may be seated. So the timing of this passage, uh, interestingly, is kind of similar to the timing of our calendar here today. It's about a week or two after Easter has occurred. That is, after uh, Jesus has died on the cross. And after people have started to have experiences of interacting with him, in his resurrection. And so the one thing that the disciples know for sure in this passage is that they saw Jesus die, that Jesus was dead, he was laid in a tomb, and then somehow a few days later the tomb was empty and people that they knew starting with Mary Magdalene started to have encounters with Jesus. And Mary Magdalene came back, told the disciples, I've seen Jesus. And the disciples really had nothing, no idea what to do with that. They were confused. They didn't know what it meant. They weren't sure what to believe. And then there was a time where the disciples gathered in a room. And in the midst of that gathering, Jesus appeared to them. And they had a personal encounter with Jesus. And everyone was there except for Thomas. And so after that meeting, the disciples are very excited. They run and they, and they rush to tell Thomas, their friend who had journeyed with them for three years with Jesus, to tell him the good news. We have seen the Lord. Now, put yourself in Thomas's shoes. If that, if, you know, this is happening to you, imagine what he's feeling. Um, for him, He knows that Jesus is dead. People are telling him that Jesus is alive. So there's going to be one layer of doubt right away, which is people that die usually stay dead. This is hard for me to believe. One level of doubt for Thomas, that makes sense. That's true of our experience as well. There's another layer of doubt that Thomas would have been feeling, um, and that's the layer of doubt of, do I even want to get myself involved with this? Uh, in both of these instances, when the disciples meet in, the ro- in this room, they lock all the doors. And that's because they are incredibly afraid of the Jewish authorities 
and of being arrested in the same way that Jesus was arrested. Jesus was arrested and killed as a blasphemer, as an insurrectionist. He had made the claim that he was the king of the Jews. He was the son of God. And these things were things that were incredibly um, uh, offending and controversial to the people, to the Jewish authorities, to the Roman Empire. And so for Thomas who has seen Jesus arrested and killed in the most brutal way possible, he's thinking, do I really want to go down this path again and get myself potentially into more trouble? There are costs and consequences to considering this that maybe I don't want to pay. And then the third level of doubt that Thomas almost certainly would have been feeling is this sense of, even if it's all true, what would Jesus actually have to say to me? Because all of the disciples had made promises to Jesus in the days leading up to his death. And they had walked with him for three years, and they had made promises like, Jesus, we have your back. Jesus, no matter what happens, we will not betray you. Even if we have to die with you, we will be faithful to you to the end. And yet when Jesus was arrested and crucified, all of the disciples fled. None of them stood with him. None of them were able to fulfill that promise. And so if you're Thomas and you realize that the vow that you had made was one that you had broken, what would Jesus say if he saw me again? How would he feel? Now, I want to suggest that on some level, some combination of all of these doubts are probably doubts that we have as well. That there are probably times in our lives where we're like, I don't know if God is real. I, I don't see him or experiencing him right now. It, you know, it, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Are you here? That those may be doubts that are really tangible and present to us at times. There may be other times where we experience the doubt of if I take another step in the direction that God is calling me to, if I take another step of trust and commitment, is it going to work out for me? What is the cost or the consequence or the sacrifice that God may require of me? And do I really want to take that on? Do I really want to take another step in that direction and pay that cost? And then there may be another doubt that we wrestle with at times, which is all the ways that I have blown it in my life, all the ways that I have let myself down and let other people down and let God down, does God really want to have anything to do with me again? And we don't often have a space to be able to address these doubts openly and honestly. It can feel uncomfortable or inappropriate maybe to talk about some of these, some of the time. And maybe deep down, there's a part of us that feels like there are people in our lives or maybe God himself that would kind of take that place of Darth Vader and say, I find your lack of faith disturbing. How can you be asking these questions? But what we see in this passage is that God actually engages with Thomas, engages with these doubts in a very active and loving way. Way, that God is not afraid of these questions, that God is not afraid of these doubts, but God actually wants to meet Thomas right at the point of his questions. And Thomas actually gives us a process, 
of what to do when we have these kinds of doubts so that we cannot get stuck or bound by our doubts, but we can engage with God right at the point of our questions and we can work through our questions into greater faith. Because that's really what is often going on when we have doubts. That when we are struggling with questions, it's not because there's something spiritually wrong with us, but it's because God is actually calling us into something new. He's calling us into a new level of trust. He's calling us into a new level of faith. He's calling us in a new season of our lives to experience God in a new way. And when we are stretched outside of our comfort zone, we start to have doubts. Is God really going to come through with us? Is this really going to work out? And so the presence of doubt in that context is actually a sign that our faith is growing, that God is developing us, developing our relationship with him in that moment. And so we're going to look at the four things that we see Thomas doing in this passage that we can take with us to help us engage with the doubts that we have. All of them happen to start with the letter S. Hopefully that makes it easier to remember. Um, So the first S that we see Thomas doing is state, as in state your doubts. Stating our doubts means that we don't try to hide them. We don't try to pretend that they don't exist. We're honest with them. We We can fully acknowledge them. And Thomas shows us how important this is. So we see Thomas doing this. The disciples come to him. They're excited. We've seen Jesus alive. And Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, put my hands into his side where he was pierced, I will not believe. Could not have been more clear. Probably offended the disciples. We told you he was alive. Why won't you believe? But I want to suggest that being honest with his doubts was the best thing that Thomas could have done. Because actually the easier thing that Thomas could have done, the worst thing that Thomas could have done, is he actually could have pretended to agree with the disciples to not cause conflict, to not offend them, and then not changed his mind and just gone on his own way. Could have said, okay, you guys, you saw Jesus. Great. That sounds wonderful. I wish I were there. I'll catch you next time. I got some fish to catch and clean. You know, see you later. Um, You guys are scaring me a little bit, but I'm just going to try to get out of this situation. And then he could have gone on his life as if nothing had happened. If he had done that, the course of history would have changed. His life would have changed. And it expresses the reality that when we have doubts and we don't acknowledge them, we try to stuff them down, we try to pretend that they don't exist, that there's a high cost to the way that we experience life when we make that choice. I was trying to figure out a way to illustrate this, and um, since it's April, start of baseball season, um, maybe there's some Giants fans or A's fans in the house, um, it actually made me think about... um, Maybe think about baseball. Uh, Maybe some of you don't know, when I was growing up, uh, baseball was one of the sports that I played most often. And um, in baseball, there's a pitcher and a batter. And what some people who write about baseball will say, they'll talk about this kind of mystery and magic of the art of pitching and hitting. That somehow 
the combination of trying to hit a round ball with a round bat and make solid contact is a little bit of a miracle in itself. There's not a lot of surface area to hit. Um, it's a little bit of an act of faith on its own. And one of the things that I've experienced uh, as someone who's played as a batter, so I played a lot in elementary school, I played one year in high school, is that the most important thing about batting is whether or not you've addressed your internal doubts. And so I've experienced both sides of this. Um, when I was in elementary school playing the Pee Wee Leagues, I was a really good hitter. Um, and part of that is because people don't throw very quickly in Pee Wee League, not afraid of getting hit by a pitch. I feel really confident in the batter's box. I'm able to swing and I have a lot of confidence about good outcomes. I dealt with any doubts that I had inside of me. Now, that situation changed a lot by the time I got to high school because pitchers start throwing 70 miles per hour, 80 miles per hour. So in high school, when I get into the batter's box, there are probably three different things that are going on in my mind. The first is, please don't hit me, please don't hit me, please don't hit me. Okay. The second is, please don't let me strike out, please don't let me strike out, please don't let me strike out. And then maybe the third is, please let me get on base. Right. All this internal doubt about whether or not I was going to be able to be successful in that situation. And so I'm choking up on the bat because I'm just desperate to try to make contact. I'm squunching down to make my strike zone as small as possible, so maybe I'll get a walk. And the thing with being a batter in that way is that there's absolutely no joy to that experience at all. Just want to get it over with. And that's why I only played one year in high school. All right. So, now, really good hitters obviously approach the, the batting opportunity in a totally different way. And they've dealt with internal doubts where they know, you know, there is nothing that is more embarrassing than taking a full swing and missing. It happens to everyone. But unless you're willing to deal with those doubts and maybe look foolish, there's also no way to hit a home run. There's no way to experience the incredible joy of success unless you're willing to give it your all. So I want to suggest that the Christian life is like being a batter. When God calls us to the plate, he asks for commitment. He promises incredible reward. When our relationship with God is not plagued by hidden doubts, we're able to fully commit to what God is calling us to, even if it involves risk or sacrifice or maybe being embarrassed or looking out of place. We're able to hold nothing back, to live with full abandon, to swing for the fences with our lives. And God promises incredible rewards for those who are able to live with this kind of commitment. God promises a deep intimacy with him, to be deeply intimate with our heavenly father, the one who created us, who knows us best. He promises the assurance of being loved and forgiven by him. He promises that we will be able to walk with God in his presence each and every day. And he promises us that everything we experience in our lives will work together for good because we're trusting him and walking with him. We have the privilege when we walk with him like that of seeing God actually work through our, our lives in ways that are beyond what we can ask 
or imagine. But when we have hidden doubts, when we're unable to make that full commitment, we miss out on the full reward. We settle for mediocrity. We go through the motions of living our spiritual lives out. Maybe we settle for occasionally attending church or just claiming the label of being a Christian. We're trying not to disqualify ourselves for judgment, you know, to receive the reward of being a Christian. And then we wonder why we're so dissatisfied with our lives, why we struggle with so many worries and anxieties, why our lives really look no different from the lives of those around us. Unresolved doubts make us play it safe Christians. It's the high cost to living with doubts, but pretending that they don't exist. So if we're to address our doubts and overcome them, the first step to addressing our doubts is to be honest with them. We have to be like Thomas. We've got to state them. These are the things that I'm struggling with right now. And when we're honest with our doubts, that leads us to the second step that we see Thomas doing, which is seeking an answer. So Thomas clearly doubted that the disciples that came to him were telling the truth, but he stated his doubts. And then what we see in verse 26 is this verse, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. So Thomas doubted, but because he was seeking the truth, he committed himself to being with the other disciples in the place where they had met Jesus. He made it a priority to be in the room where they had encountered him last time. So one of the things that we see from Thomas in this is that he realized that answering this question about whether Jesus was alive, answering this question about whether God was real, whether his hopes for who Jesus was and what it meant for his life, that that was the most important thing in his life that he could possibly pursue an answer for. He knew that depending on the answer that he got, it was going to change the course of his life one way or another. And I want to suggest that that's true for us as well, that there is no other question in our lives that is more important for us to answer than, is God real? And what is the impact that he has on my life? It's more important than who we marry or whether we should get married. It's more important than what job we have. It's more important than what school we're in. It's more important than what major we choose. It's more important than any other question that we could be facing. Because God is our heavenly father and our creator. He's making that claim that he has full authority over our lives, that he's the one that makes our entire universe, our entire reality work. And if that's true, it changes all the other decisions that we make. And if it's not true, it also changes all the other decisions that we make. And the reason why it's so important to us is, you know, in the context of finding God in Silicon Valley, the reality is there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley that just want to like Jesus. You know, if you ask the common person on the street, what do you think about Jesus? They're probably most likely to say, you know, Jesus is all right. He was a good teacher. He's inspiring. He taught a lot about love. Um, I don't really have a problem with Jesus. They might have a problem with the church. They might have a problem with Christians that they know. But most people kind of want to like Jesus. 
Well, the problem is the Bible doesn't have a category for just liking Jesus. The claim of Jesus is he is Lord. He's our creator. He's the ultimate authority in the universe. He's the ultimate lover of our souls. And if God is God, the Bible is true, and Jesus is risen from the dead, it changes how we see everything. Our world, ourselves, our plan, our purpose, our identity. And if he's not those things, then Jesus was either crazy or a liar. We really shouldn't respect him at all. But answering that question, who is God? Who is Jesus? What difference does it make in my life? Is the most important question that we can possibly answer. The other thing that we see from Thomas, just in this context of this passage, is that when we're seeking God, the answers are often found in community. Just very practically, you know, Jesus could have shown himself to Thomas one-on-one. Right? In between this first meeting of the disciples and the second meeting of the disciples, a whole week passed by. And it wasn't like Jesus was saying, oh, I just don't have time to squeeze Thomas into my calendar. I just got to wait. Whole week, if Jesus had wanted to meet Thomas one-on-one, he could have shown himself to him at any time. But Jesus chose to wait until Thomas was together again with the disciples, and then he showed himself to all of the disciples together again. And the reality is, you know, when we're dealing with the doubts in our lives, a lot of times we prefer to deal with them alone. We don't really want other people up in our business. We don't want the awkwardness of telling people what we're struggling with. But it's a big deal when we see Jesus often reveals himself when there are people gathered together that are seeking him together. And so if we're not willing to share our spiritual journey with others, to support other people in their journey, to allow them to support us, we're missing out on an essential part of encountering Jesus and experiencing him. All right, so Jesus states his doubts. He seeks an answer. And then what happens? Okay, the third S is C. Jesus uh, Thomas gets to see Jesus. In spite of all of Thomas's doubts, Jesus shows up. Jesus comes right up to Thomas and says, put your finger here. See my hands. See where the nails pierced them as I was crucified. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. This is where the spear cut my skin and water and blood poured out. So just very practically, the first two S's were up to Thomas. Thomas was responsible for whether he was willing to openly state his doubts. Thomas was responsible for whether he was genuinely seeking an answer for them. But this third S wasn't entirely up to Thomas. In part, Jesus, he was able to see Jesus because he was willing to state his doubts and to seek an answer. But the most important part of Thomas being able to see Jesus was because Jesus was seeking Thomas, just like Jesus is seeking every one of us. And what we see in this passage is that when Jesus shows up, he didn't need to be told what was going on for Thomas. It's not like the disciples had to take him aside and say, Jesus, we brought Thomas here. These are the things that he asked about. If you could just do this, it probably would help him. Jesus comes right up to Thomas. He knows exactly what Thomas had said to the disciples. And he said, this is what you asked for. Touch my hands. This is where the nails 
came in. Touch my side. This is where I was pierced. I'm going to meet you right at the point of your doubt. One of the things that I've often struggled with in this passage, um, especially when I read it when I was um, just starting my relationship with God or before I made a decision, was that I often envied Thomas. I often felt like, you know, of course Thomas was able to believe. He got to see Jesus. He got to touch him. If I could see Jesus and touch him too, it would be a whole lot easier for me to believe as well. Anyone else ever thought that? Um, And then we misunderstand, you know, verse 29, where verse 29 says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And we think that somehow Jesus is saying, well, everyone else except for Thomas, you you got to just believe because of blind faith. You don't get what Thomas got. It's actually the opposite of what this passage is teaching. The point of the passage isn't that Thomas gets to see Jesus and we don't. The point of the passage is that God knows where we struggle with our faith. And if we're willing to be honest with our doubts, God desires to reveal himself to us in a way that will help us overcome our doubts. You know, there are a lot of stories in this place, some of them I've had the privilege to hear, of different lives here where you've encountered a place where you've been stuck, where you've needed something from God, where you didn't know how you could go on. You needed God to show up in your life, and God showed up in your life in a way to move forward. I don't know all of those stories. It's part of why we love fostering community here so some of those stories can get told. But I do know the story of how God has shown that he is faithful in pursuing me. When I grew up, I grew up in a family that didn't often go to church. Um, I was really engaged with Christianity significantly late in high school. And at first, the main questions that I had were around, is it true? You know, is, did Jesus really walk on this earth? Did he really, you know, come back from the dead? And this message isn't really designed to answer those questions. But one of the things that I really appreciated is that of all the religious faiths in, in the world, there is no faith that has been tested and scrutinized and challenged both inside the faith and outside the faith like Christianity has by um, theologians, by scientists, by historians, by linguists, by every single category of people have, has had to deal with the impact of Christianity on our civilization and has been scrutinized from every angle. And as the centuries have gone by, the core truths of Christianity have stood the test of time. That there are brilliant people from all sorts of different disciplines that continue to look at with the full expertise of their area and say, you know what, the thing that makes the most sense is to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And it was a lot of reading that allowed me to get past the intellectual doubts that I was struggling with at the time. But the most important doubts that I had before God were not doubts of my head, but doubts of my heart. For much of my life, when I was growing up, uh, my life was really shaped around achievement. It was shaped around how good my grades were, what college I hoped to attend, whether people liked me, my prospects for the future. And because I really cared about these things and I cared about how other people viewed me in those things, I built a facade around myself. And facade is an image of what people see when they look at me. And my facade was one that, you know, was strong, whole, put together. 
Well, inside, there was a lot going on. I felt deeply broken, lonely. When no one else was around, I struggled with habitual sins that I couldn't overcome. I was wrestling constantly with shame and guilt. I was convinced that if people knew the real me, that they would see my hypocrisy and turn away. And if anything, when I became a Christian uh, really late in high school, it actually made things worse. Instead of trying to feel like I had to, you know, control what people thought of me academically and socially, now I had to control what people thought of me religiously as well. And so I threw myself into that. I led small groups. I studied the Bible, grew in Bible knowledge. But all, all along, I was holding people at arm's length, afraid that if they saw the real me, that they would reject what they saw. And I remember being in worship services like this one and singing, and all the while thinking, wow, the people around me have no idea what's going on inside of me. Maybe there's someone here who's feeling the same way today as well. At the core of my condition were doubts that I couldn't shake. I knew in my head what the Bible said, that God loved me, that Jesus had risen from the dead, that the Holy Spirit was inside of me. But in my heart, I doubted that God could really make a difference in my life. I doubted that God could heal the brokenness that I felt, that God's promises of abiding joy, of transformation and forgiveness, they could really come true in my life. And it was years after I first made a decision of faith that I actually had an encounter with God that changed the direction of my life. I was about halfway through college. I had just ended a dating relationship, so I had a lot of time on my hands. Um, it, was a su- it was summertime. I went on long walks uh, in the foothills by 280, the heart of Silicon Valley. And in those times of prayer and reflection, God started showing me pictures. Uh, I had a picture of a rock that was encrusted by mud and being washed clean by living water. I had an image of a twisted wire being untwisted by unseen hands. And those images spoke to my heart because I knew that I was that rock that God was washing clean. I was that wire that God was untwisting. And as I started to confront with honesty the broken areas of my life, I started to confess my sins to people I trusted that was incredibly scary. But when I felt God's love back instead of judgment and criticism— All I can say is that I experienced the presence and reality of God in a way that I always hoped for but never believed was real. And in the course of a summer, habitual sins were broken. I discovered a new freedom with God and with other people. And I was able to just move forward in relationship with God and walking with God in a way that has really led me to this place. Until that point in time, I had always envied Thomas when I read this passage because I always thought, if only I could see Jesus too, that would be the breakthrough that I need. If only I could see his hands. If only I could put my hands into him. But that summer, I learned that I don't need to envy Thomas. The only difference between Thomas and us is that God doesn't address our doubts by allowing us to put our hands in him, God addresses our doubts by him putting his hands into us. I felt his hands reaching into my life in those times of prayer. 
I felt his hands when the power of sin was being broken. I felt his hands when I experienced a forgiveness and encountered a joy that I never expected. He reaches his hands into us and touches our hearts, our minds, our spirits, and changes us and heals us in a way that only he can do. When Thomas experienced that, he was able to take the next step in addressing his doubts. And that final step, that final S, is surrender. When Thomas saw Jesus, he had one response, my Lord and my God. And Thomas's response was not just with words, but it was with his whole life. Thomas gives us the testimony of being the only disciple to proclaim the gospel outside the boundaries of the Roman Empire. He traveled to India, planting churches along the, along the way. He was faithful to the very end of his life, dying as a martyr. And to this day, there are communities of Christians in India that can trace their spiritual lineage all the way back to Thomas's ministry in the first century. We have no idea the impact our lives can make if we are able to address our doubts and move forward in following God. So I want to end today first by saying this is a process. It's not a one-time thing. In every season of our lives, we bring new doubts to God because God stretches us and calls us to engage with him in new ways. And so this process of stating our doubts, seeking an answer, seeing Jesus, and then being able to surrender is one that we will do over and over again in our lives. But the good news is that Jesus always wants to meet us at the point of our doubts. 